Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic, the podcast of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I am Maya Nowens. Today we'll examine the recent developments in the Asia-Pacific, looking in particular at the geopolitical tensions in the South China Sea and Australia's strategic policy towards China and the region. Joining me are two of my colleagues from the IISS's Asia office in Singapore, Dr. Lin Kwok and Dr. Ewan Graham, who are both IISS Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellows for Asia-Pacific Security, and both bring a wealth of knowledge with them, so looking forward to this discussion today. Welcome, Lin and Ewan. Thanks so much, Maya. Really glad to be speaking to you today. Likewise, Maya. Good to be with you. Lynn, let me start with you. Despite the COVID pandemic, the South China Sea dispute has not seemed to calm down. We've seen a number of developments in the past couple of months leading to increased tensions in the region. Can you take us through what, from your perspective, have been the most important developments and whether they're different from activities that we've seen over the past few years? Yeah, sure. Um, I think we've seen... uh an intensification of activities in the South China Sea. Um, Both the United States as well as China have sent warships and fighter jets to the Taiwan Strait. Um, We've also seen increased incursions by China into the uh, exclusive economic zones of uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, and now even Malaysia. Uh, Its uh, vessel has hit and sunk a Vietnamese uh, fishing boat, and that took place sometime in April. And we've seen China continue with a very large presence um, around uh, a feature occupied by the Philippines in the Spratly's D2 island. Um, I think a lot of this may be seen as more of the same, but what has been rather surprising, however, has been two two things. One has been uh, China's uh, attempts to now encroach on uh, Malaysia's exclusive economic zone. In the past, we saw a near constant, but um, generally rather low level presence of uh, Chinese vessels around uh, a feature uh, administered by Malaysia called Luconia Shoals. Um, In general though, Malaysia got a free pass from China for quite some time. So it's quite surprising then that, you know, China has sought to um, survey uh, the exclusive economic zone of Malaysia. This might be linked to um, an extended continental shelf uh, claim that Malaysia made late last year. Um, But that was something that was in the making for the last uh, 10 years or so, at least. Um, And the other thing as well is that um, we've seen China also progressively encroach into Vietnam's EEZ more and more. So in the first year after the South China Sea Tribunal ruling in 2016 July, um, China generally laid quite low, um, although it said that the ruling was completely out of hand and it would not be following it. Um, I think China generally kept, stayed low and, you know, uh, sought to uh, continue low-level presence, but not uh, China light when it's uh, not um, not to do too much in the South China Sea. About a year after, it started um, threatening Vietnam with uh, military action should Vietnam continue with survey activities in Vietnam's own exclusive economic zone, and that was repeated again in twenty. Those threats were repeated again in uh, twenty eighteen. By 2019, China had actually actively surveyed um, Vietnam's exclusive economic zone. So we see a gradual um, 
escalation of its activities in the exclusive economic zone of other uh, literal states in the South China Sea. That's really interesting. And um, you and it's not just China, of course, but the U.S. and and others have also um, been uh, ever present in the region. So we've seen an uptick recently in the number of countries participating in, uh, for example, sailing through uh, the South China Sea or conducting exercises there. Australia's HMAS Parramatta uh, joined three U.S. warships in April this year. So what is this a reflection of? Well, let's not forget that this is taking place in the context of a global pandemic, uh, which has also stretched the military capabilities of the United States and uh, and other countries, which are understandably preoccupied and and distracted in in some cases, uh, their own militaries have been affected. So I think there's a general sense that while it may look like business as usual, uh, business as usual is rather provocative given the circumstances. Uh, I think on the United States part, um, they have been uh, generally motivated uh, by a concern to be present uh, and to make sure that China is not emboldened to to go beyond business as usual and do anything rash uh, at a period when the United States, uh, its allies and partners uh, have their guard down. I think that can be the part of the explanation for uh, a fairly assertive approach in April and and May uh, on the part of uh, uh, the United States to get a uh, an amphibious ready group, several ships, including a large ship which operates the, the F-35 uh, um, jet fighter, uh, as a way of demonstrating to the Southeast Asians that the United States was basically still around uh, and that, um, that that would be a factor that China would have to take into account uh, in its actions um, with, with all comers. The interesting thing is that um, the reaction of the Malaysians themselves was rather ambivalent to that, uh, that they, uh, as um, Lynn has said, I think they have their own uh, bilateral preference and a sense that they can work things out with China even when they're on the receiving end of, 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 uh, of bullying tactics from, from China. You mentioned Australia. That, that was... Um, not a hugely significant uh, military role, but I think uh, nonetheless uh, important that Australia uh, was in the South China Sea, continues its presence there, uh, and is also a way of demonstrating that uh, it hasn't uh, wholly dropped its guard and was still continuing to operate with uh, with the U.S. Navy. So maybe looking at other countries uh, in Southeast Asia and, and how they're responding to um, this intensification of activity in the South China Sea. Vietnam currently holds the ASEAN chairmanship until the end of this year. And the first of this year's two summits um, was postponed and will be held uh, at the end of this month in June. Um, so what can we expect from this summit with regards to the South China Sea dispute? Can we see, for example, whether progress will be made of the co- uh, on the code of conduct with China, which, according to Li Keqiang, should have been, uh, will be, or will hopefully be, uh, concluded by 2021? Um, can either of you give us an update on this? Um, I could chip in first. Um, I think, in general, the code of conduct has been a bit of a um, farce, um, but countries continue with it because China looks like it's offering a fig leaf, and um, so that helps China. And from the perspective of ASEAN, it looks like it's you know 
playing a central role in uh, driving the dispute towards, res if not resolution, then at least managing the dispute. Um, so I think I expect that process to continue, even though there might be accusations of uh, China um, Chinese activities in the South China Sea. So we will trudge along that path. But I think ultimately there are several issues which plague uh, the conclusion of a meaningful code of conduct. I think the first one would be the scope of application of the code of conduct. Will it, should it apply to the entire South China Sea or only to the areas under dispute? Um, for instance, would Vietnam accept to a code of conduct applying within their exclusive economic zone? The second um, issue that's quite sticky is whether or not, you know, undertakings should uh, include one of restraint. So, you know, stop building or stop militarizing features in the South China Sea, or whether that should be something less than that, such as an obligation to promote trust and confidence building. Um, of course, from China's perspective, it should be the latter. Trust me, I'm China. I don't have any bad intentions. The third issue I would suggest would be um, how disputes should be resolved under the code of conduct. And I think for it to be meaningful, there needs to be reference within the code of conduct to compulsory dispute resolution. Um, and finally, there will there's still an issue remaining about, you know, what the legal status of the code of conduct should be. Should this be a binding code of conduct or merely a political document, a political statement, in which case it will be little different from the declaration of the code of conduct concluded decades ago and which has done, which has done very little to um, help manage the dispute. I mean, with all of that in mind, um, it doesn't sound very promising. And, um, you know, considering the current context of, of uh, great power rivalry between the U.S. and China, um, again, what, what do you think we can expect from, from the summit this year? I think the, uh, the broader issue that ASEAN faces is that uh, Asian multilateralism has, has really suffered uh, in the pandemic. It's not the only casualty. Uh, but its, its inactivity is conspicuous. Uh, and I think many countries have, um, have, have noted that. There's been an upsurge in, in bilateralism as a way of, of working around that. Uh, and that's not only due to the incapacity of, uh, of the pandemic. I think there's a broader issue that the Code of Con Conduct crystallizes, namely that uh, it, China is able to... to maneuver the ASEAN countries in a way uh, that, that is inimicable to their, their interests in the South China Sea. I think what China really wants is the code of conduct to be a, a template, a kind of moving template uh, that also instructs and educates Southeast Asian countries uh, into understanding that China is not going away and that it's China's way of dealing at the South China Sea on their terms excluding um, other foreign interventions, be they military or, or diplomatic. I think that's the way in which China has, has learned that the, the code of conduct works in its favour. And unfortunately, I think ASEAN has, uh, has, has lost uh, some impetus. Uh, I, I see that from tracking it from an Australian perspective, where I find that interesting because Australia pays a great deal of... Uh, of um, attention to, to ASEAN at, as being at the core of its foreign policy and that's rather dropped out in the last month. We've seen instead that Australia has been um, instead focusing on 
the G20, the UN, uh, now prospectively an enlarged uh, G7, uh, and where it is playing in Asia. Asia, of course, is still vital, but it tends to be the bilaterals that, 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 are, that are coming through. Uh, and that is only going to work, I think, in, in China's favour. Vietnam, of course, is, is the strongest of all the Southeast Asian countries because it has most at stake. And I think it, paradoxically, although it has a land border with China, it knows how to deal with China uh, through a position of strength better, I think, than any other ASEAN country. That's really interesting. Lynn, would you agree that um, there is still disunity uh, within ASEAN when it comes to um, responding to the challenges posed by China in the South China Sea? Or would you say that there's been a change in mood within ASEAN when it comes to uh, the dispute and how to respond to China? I think there's certainly disunity um, uh, within ASEAN in terms of how to deal with uh, China and the South China Sea. The obvious uh, outliers are Cambodia and Laos, who are certainly in China's camp in this respect. But even within the claimant states, we have Brunei um, in 2016 uh, signing an agree uh, a declaration together with Cambodia, Laos, and China that the South China Sea dispute is really for um, parties con uh, claimants to the South China Sea uh, to deal with and not outsiders, uh, ignoring the fact that, of course, the South China Sea is an international uh, is uh, international waters and other countries have an interest in uh, the South China Sea, as well as the fact that, you know, they have an interest in a peaceful resolution of the dispute and adherence to the rule of law. So that's also a clear uh, division. But even within um, other claimant states who have been a little bit more forward-leaning, like Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia. Um, Vietnam, as you had mentioned, is the most forward-leaning. Malaysia is kind of confused about what the position should be. It doesn't want to offend China, and in that respect has been quite rough on the United States, but I'm rather worried that, you know, I think Malaysia has to be careful what it wishes for if it doesn't want the United States around. The United States, particularly under this administration, might decide, okay, then no more president's operations when you're in trouble. Um, and then you have Indonesia who, that has also sought to, you know, be more forward-leaning in terms of protecting its fishing resources um, in the face of Chinese incursions um, earlier at, at the end of last year and this year. But Indonesia, you know, it, it's approaching the the dispute very much as a bilateral uh, issue between itself and China, and it is very reluctant to take up a leadership role uh, in terms of forging a stronger ASEAN response. And I think the most um, obvious example of how ASEAN has failed to come together is a very simple one, the uh, negotiations in the Code of Conduct. What would make the most sense is for ASEAN to come up with a draft Code of Conduct um, and then have that go through reiterations with China. What they have instead had, even the so-called single draft negotiating text, what that ultimately is, is a very basic and skeletal text with the positions of the various countries then stipulated within that text. So that's not a single draft, that's multiple drafts. And the reason for that is that China in the past has objected to ASEAN coming up with a single negotiating text. So this has been, uh, this has been the approach, the, the multiple um, countries approach has been the approach because you know of, of fears of China's Chinese objections that's really interesting um, 
of course, this raises a question for me, um, whether within this wider context of um, U.S.-China uh, competition and rivalry at the moment, um, whether countries in Southeast Asia and um, in the wider Asia-Pacific region are going to have to choose between um, a stronger uh, relationship with China or uh, the United States. Singaporean Prime Minister uh, Lee has published just today on the 4th of June an essay in Foreign Affairs in which he emphasizes the importance of uh, the U.S.-China relationship, um, really reiterating that uh, stability in the region requires cooperation between the two countries and that other states shouldn't have to choose between the two. Do you think that this is a sustainable and realistic approach or, or, or an option for most countries um, as tensions ramp up? Uh, maybe start with Ewan. I think the idea that it comes down to a single choice is, is a falsehood. It's going to be a number of choices cut across multiple issues, the South China, China, South China Sea being just one. Uh, and that gives Southeast Asia some leeway, leeway that they, they know in their they have a muscle memory because Southeast Asian countries have dealt with great powers in the same way uh, long before the, the, the Europeans uh, showed up into, into prehistory. So I, I, I think Southeast Asia will find a way that means they're not um, shoehorned into a, an exclusive choice. Um, and I think uh, the United States is, is, is not behaving uh, in, the, in the most conducive way diplomatically, to put it mildly. But even they would understand that uh, I think presenting things as, a, as an exclusive choice is, is a no-sell in, uh, in Southeast Asia. Again, I think that you have to look at it where it breaks down at the national level. We've had one interesting data point just in the last couple of days come in that uh, the Philippines, uh, having long uh, said for several months that it was going to uh, abrogate the visiting forces uh, agreement with the United States, which means that the U.S. can bring its forces in as a treaty ally, uh, it has now um, reversed course. That seems to be a sort of typical uh, Duterte uh, uh, flip-flop, probably not one that's strategically motivated, but nonetheless, uh, it, it does, uh, I think, help this position of the United States at a time when there's been a stream of bad news from, uh, from, from inside uh, the country, uh, and that in Southeast Asia, at least that's that's one problem that it, it it hopefully will not have to face come August, which is when that that agreement was due to expire. I just wanted to add something to the question of choice. Um, I think, in general, ASEAN countries have been very reluctant to, to choose between. Um, the United States and China, and they've said this repeatedly. So Prime Minister Li said this in the foreign affairs article you mentioned, but he also said that last year at the Shangri-La Dialogue, um, ASEAN countries do not want to choose. Um, the United States and China both also say, we don't want, we are not asking you to choose. However, the behavior um, has clearly put ASEAN countries into a very tight spot. So how have um, ASEAN countries sought to navigate um, uh, the rough waters between the super two superpowers. It's been difficult, but I think an attempt by um, of navigating or seeking to balance the two uh, was um, was uh, tried when it issued its ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. I think it was last June. And that document, um, while adopting Indo-Pacific terminology, 
also talked about the importance of infrastructure development in the region, and I think that was a clear nod to China. It also reasserted ASEAN centrality and principles such as uh, respect for sovereignty and non-intervention. Uh, and I think this was also uh, a reminder to the two superpowers that you know they they should not be rocking the ASEAN boat in terms of you know asking them to make choices. Um, I think ultimately, as you know, great power rivalry um, rumbles along, I think it's going to be more and more difficult as we see with the, the whole debacle around 5G. Um, it's, it's going to be more and more difficult for us in country to stay out of the fray and to not make choices. And I think what they need to, do, to be doing and what I think that with varying levels of success are uh, doing is to not take the side of either the United States or China necessarily, but to say that we will take the side of international law and the rules-based order. And we will side with the superpower that 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 seeks to adhere this and this might be a different superpower depending on the issue but i think this at least takes away some of the 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 hard edges of the competition between the united states and china and puts asean countries at least in a more palatable uh position so moving away from southeast asia then to a little bit further afield um UN, Australia's relationship with China um, has become increasingly confrontational uh, in the last uh, two years, year and a half. Can you give us a little bit of a background as to why this relationship is worsening at the moment? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, it may sound odd to our listeners why, why Australia, China would be interesting. I mean, after all, uh, to put it in its proper context, uh, India is currently facing incursions across its uh, Himalayan frontier, frontier with China uh, that, that um, has a potential uh, military um, flashpoint uh, to it. So uh, Australia dealing with, uh, with barley tariffs is, uh, is, is rather mild by comparison. But nonetheless, I think Australia is interesting as a, as a bellwether, uh, certainly for how uh, liberal democracies uh, and US allies in the region uh, react to China. Uh, and why is that? Well, I think it's for two uh, rather uh, obvious uh, reasons, but I'll spell them out. One is that Australia is more geographically exposed than certainly the, the, the Five Eyes uh, allies uh, because of uh, where it sits in the middle of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and also uh, it is more economically exposed to China, uh, having more than a third of its trade in goods um, accounted for in that uh, relationship. So uh, it, it, it's often compared in somewhat cliched terms to the canary in the coal mine, but you can see why, because this might be a vision of, of the future um, that other countries have to deal with. And for no coincidence that Australia has uh, in some respects been ahead of the curve in the measures that it's taken. Uh, for example, the, the foreign interference legislation that it uh, introduced, the 5G decision, uh, these were ahead of the curve even of the United States. And what lessons does Australia's relationship uh, with China have for other countries, not just in the region, but, but further afield? I mean, what are the main takeaways here? We know that China responds differently to different countries in its bilateral relationships, um, depending on who those countries are and how important they are to China's um, economy or um, a global standing. So, for example, Australia's relationship with China has, has taken a different turn, or China rather, has responded differently to in its relationship with Australia than it has with uh, Australia's Five Eyes partner, New Zealand, for example. That, that's right. 
I think the the tableau to look at this through would be the, the experience of the last month where we had uh, Australia going out uh, on the international scene uh, for the first time really kind of head-to-head -head, if you like with with China on a major uh, conflictual issue which was the the call for an inquiry into uh, uh, into the COVID-19 uh, pandemic which uh, saw Australia um, uh, you know rather gamely uh, but perhaps not advisedly exposed uh, in the teeth of um, of the of a blame game between the two superpowers where with the United States rather ambivalent in some ways about Australia's approach to the inquiry because it, it had its own set of, uh, of findings that uh, uh, that Australia um, did not support and yet uh, China um, at the same time uh, threatening Australia with, uh, with, with trade retaliation uh, and uh, a full-blown, full-throated wolf warrior uh, disinformation uh, campaign and stream of invective. So uh, it was uh, certainly a hot seat that, uh, that Canberra was in. Uh, how relevant is that to other countries? Well, I, I think, go back to the, the issue that Australia is interesting uh, as, a, as a, a liberal democracy and a, a member of the, the Five Eyes Alliance around the United States. Uh, so in that sense, uh, I think it's, it's also a tempting target for China. Um, if we assume that China, uh, one of its core objectives is to splinter the US alliance in the, in the Pacific, uh, which will um, improve its security situation, then Australia is going to be a very uh, obvious target. Uh, not a target necessarily for direct military coercion uh, as we've seen in the South China Sea or on the India-China border, uh, but using that economic cudgel uh, of a 35% uh, plus uh, reliance as a, as a trade partner. Um, and I think that's, that's a very interesting uh, set of policy dilemmas for Canberra because it's, it's not just the, the, the kind of traditional uh, approach to balancing that, that uh, will be necessary. It's a much more comprehensive more complex set of uh, considerations uh, in, in which uh, Canberra is also finding its way without the support or reliance of its tr traditional ally, at least not to the, anywhere the degree that it's, it's, it's comfortable um, doing in, 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 in previous cases. Uh, so I think there's also a kind of middle power paragon value to what Australia is doing. It may not have made perfect choices. I think it certainly took a, a very high level of risk in, in, in going out um, ahead of the pack uh, in a way that probably wasn't necessary without it should have uh, done some preliminary consultations before announcing its intentions. But nonetheless, it, it did get a, a diplomatic win of sorts with the passage of a draft motion through the, the World Health Assembly. And I, I think that's, that's healthy for Australia, but also for other countries to, to look at it and say, well, Okay, um, you know the, the lights didn't go out. Bali may have suffered, uh, but the economic relationship um, with China and others continues. And it's that stitching together of, of middle powers that's going to be key. Uh, we've also seen that with subsequent measures announced to, uh, with the idea of, of, um, of economic resilience and, and removing vulnerability in the supply chain, particularly where there's an exposure to China. Just today, Prime Minister Morrison has concluded a virtual bilateral summit with his counterpart, uh, Mahendra Modi, in, in India. We'll see what comes out of that. If there's movement towards 
um, cooperating on, on, on these uh, geoeconomic issues, uh, then I think that that, that will um, be helpful for the traction for, for others that, that look and are rather afraid of going over the parapet themselves. I mean, European countries are clearly watching um, Australia's uh, foreign policy towards China and how it responds to the challenges um, that China poses in the areas of trade um, uh, with economic coercion, mind, uh, and, and others. Um, but NATO, of course, is also deciding what its China policy should be. Now, Secretary General Stoltenberg last year said that um, this is a response to China coming to Europe and not about NATO going to the Asia-Pacific. And I wanted to ask you both what countries in the region would think about a potential role for NATO with regards to China and upholding the rules-based international uh, order in the Asia-Pacific. Um, would a NATO presence, if that were ever envisioned uh, in the Asia-Pacific, uh, be welcomed or would it further complicate matters? I suppose my question gets to the heart of how much cooperation coordination is useful and helpful before it becomes complicated uh, and, and unhelpful. Let me take a stab at that, Maya. Um, last year, I gave testimony before the UK Defence Committee inquiry into the security situation in the Far East. And to do my research into the issue, I spoke to various people in the region and I asked them um, what they thought of a greater UK military presence in the region. And although in principle, I think they were quite welcoming of middle, middle powers like the UK um, uh, seeking to balance the power in the region, I think there was in general a great deal of skepticism about, um, in this case, it was the relevance of the UK and what it could actually do um, in the midst of Brexit and um, after Brexit and um, and um, whether actually at the end of the day, a sort of half-hearted presence that came and went might be more trouble than it was worth. So in that context, um, I think the committee was asking about whether or not, you know, countries like Singapore, Brunei would welcome a UK a military base in um, in these countries. And and I think from, from the, the perspective of ASEAN countries, it would be, you know, we would anger China um, by doing that. Um, while not having the reassurance of uh, a strategically um, weighty country that stayed their ground. Um, and so I think from that perspective, they, they, they were quite um, reluctant to rock the boat too much. Um, I think I suspect that they would look towards greater NATO participation in the region or greater NATO presence in the region with the same sort of um, wariness. Um, is it going to be a sustained presence that is is significant and that would help to maintain the balance of the power of power in the region, even if it angers China a little bit at the outset, or is it just going to anger China with with no real um, effect um, in terms and and possibly make things worse because you know it comes and goes. Yeah, I th I think there's a difference between the balance of power and the balance of resolve or, or numerous other balances that, that might be brought into play here, uh, Europe is not going to materially affect the balance of power uh, in East Asia. Uh, China is simply too, too strong for, for uh, France or, or the UK or the EU or, or, or whoever uh, to really make a difference. So when aircraft carriers show up, um, they make a point and, and 
the states that uh, operate them like to um, use them perhaps in a tosimistic sort of way, but they don't really count in the balance of power. They count more in terms of global balancing in which I think it's far more important that, that the UK, France, EU, whoever, uh, play their role in, in maintaining open free trade uh, arrangements, that they speak up for uh, democracies, uh, that they make statements on, on human rights, and if necessary, that they take uh, self-protection measures uh, to protect their supply chains. This is where it's really going to count in the early part of the 21st century, rather than the balance of power. So I think uh, NATO is really the, the hammer in the toolbox that's a little out of place. Uh, it, it's going to be, uh, you know, maybe important to have a dialogue between NATO and Europe, but uh, as NATO uh, uh, has, has itself said, um, the, the, the old model of Europe bringing a kind of voluntary contribution to East Asia um, is now rather passe because uh, China uh, is in Europe's midst and knocking on its door uh, and in partnership with Russia posing a potential strategic uh, threat that uh, Europeans will have to directly take into account. And of course there's that. If Europe uh, does decide to play a hard role, a hard power role, um, then um, the red phone might be ringing very quickly from Beijing to Moscow uh, asking for a reciprocal favour uh, to take Europeans' attentions away. I think uh, there has to be some uh, uh, realism about what level of, of, um, uh, of influence uh, Europe can bring to bear, uh, especially given how hard it's been knocked uh, in the current pandemic. Uh, but it's not all um, doom and gloom. I, I do think it, it, that European member states are going to continue to uh, have a, a presence in, in uh, this part of the world, which is useful. Um, but it's, it's not really one that comes under a NATO or, or even an EU banner. The UK, of course, is now out of the EU, but uh, has signalled that it's going to continue uh, a forward presence. And I, I think we, um, uh, that's likely to, to happen. Um, it may be uh, small patrol boats, but uh, nonetheless, it's, it's, it's present in a way that um, I think uh, there will be some... Uh, receptivity to that on the part of individual Southeast Asian countries uh, and certainly from the, the bigger Asian powers, uh, Japan uh, uh, and including Australia as, a, as an Indo-Pacific um, state too. I completely agree with you and it's critical that um, countries like the UK, France, uh, Germany and even the Netherlands um, uh, maintain a sort of presence in the region um, and as Ian pointed out, it's, it's more than just the military balance of power. It's also about sending a signal that rules matter, that the rules-based order matters, and that um, although e and that you know countries were willing to take certain actions uh, to support that um, the, the rules-based order. So even though any individual country might not be able to make a significant um, difference in terms of the military balance of power in the region. I think collectively they send a strong message that you know we 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 all want good behaviour and we all benefit from uh, from good behaviour. And I think the other uh, important thing about uh, a European presence in the region as well is is, is it takes the edge off a direct U.S.-China competition. Um, 
China has been able to say, has repeatedly stated that, you know, this is about the United States uh, wanting to uh, remain hegemon in the region. Uh, it's about the United States wanting to uh, contain China. But with the involvement with, of other middle powers, including European middle powers, uh, European powers, uh, we see a different uh, message emerge. We see a message um, that you know rules matter and um, we're going to do all we can to maintain the rules that have benefited all of us big or small yeah i i um i i just think there has to be some humility on the europeans part about um, how things have changed very dramatically in the last few months um, there can't be any more lectures about uh, europe's uh, status as a, a, a you know, a, a model of capacity building and crisis prevention and, and uh, crisis response when uh, it's uh, it was caught clearly flat-footed and divided in, in the pandemic. Uh, I wouldn't want to be the next European official who has to go in front of an Asian audience to uh, to make those points. Uh, so I think that narrative certainly has to, has to adjust. Uh, but as Lynn says, um, I think it remains the case that partly because the United St States is seen as more capricious and less reliant than it has been in the past, uh, there is going to be some demand on the Asian states for a, a European uh, role. Uh, and I think um, it's important that those Asian states uh, do make that, that, uh, that point because the Europeans, frankly, um, they have their, their work cut out just to simply uh, maintain defence budgets uh, as they are, let alone uh, sending uh, ships uh, to the other side of the world. So I think that um, if you want it to happen, it, it, it has to be a, an iterative two-way process and that the demand signal has to be unambiguous and clear uh, from Asian countries uh, and that the assumption that, uh, that the, the old contribution is going to sort of show up in the form of a, a, a rainbow fleet of Norwegian and Danish and Netherlands and whoever else ships uh, just doesn't really hold anymore. Um, I think one point I just would like to make also, the United States, uh, although it is, um, uh, you know, going through a, f a phase, to put it mildly, uh, that, uh, that throws a lot of doubt in the minds of its allies and partners, it has also played a role in asking European countries to be more interested. I think uh, in a post-COVID environment, that is going to be uh, an easier sell to the Europeans uh, for the uh, obvious reason that China has uh, simply created a lot of an unnecessary antipathy towards itself uh, in the way that it's conducted its diplomacy. I'm really happy that you raised that last point um, because it leads perfectly into my next question, which is really for you both to kind of hone in on um, what the U.S. role uh, in the Asia-Pacific uh, is at the moment and what perceptions of U.S. leadership are. Have these changed? Is the U.S. a less dependable ally for Southeast Asian and Asia-Pacific countries? I think there's no doubt um, that COVID has, uh, COVID-19 and the U.S. response to it has further dented um, the confidence of ASEAN and Asian countries in the ability uh, of the United States to demonstrate 
any degree of uh, leadership, at least under this administration. Um, I think uh, the US response uh, to COVID-19 um, saw it shirk um, regional and global leadership, and in some cases actually shirk responsibility. Um, its actions um, showed total disregard for allies and partners. You know, it's, it's uh, the failure of the G7 to issue a statement was uh, simply because of uh, the United States, uh, the, the President of the United States, um, seeking to bolster his national, uh, nationalistic um, support. And um, it, it's just been an embarrassment um, and disappointment, frankly. So I, I think Asian countries would be hard pressed to have any degree of confidence in the United States at this point in time. However, I think many must be looking towards the November elections and hoping for um, for reprieve from the current state. Um, I think it's true that uh, uh, that COVID reveals that the United States has deep structural issues that are not going to go away. But I think the failure of leadership, um, they are hoping, and, and I certainly think this is partly the, the case, has been very much linked to the uh, disastrous handling of the situation um, by the president, the current president of the United States. So I think um, there is a great degree of wariness of um, of China that is retained in uh, the region, um, but but they uh, the region still wants to continue to work with uh, China, given the uncertainty about U.S. Um, commitment to the region and you know its ability to sustain leadership moving forward. Um, but I think the region would like to have choices, um, and um, I think they won't be making any definitive decisions until um, after the November elections. Ewan, do you, do you agree or has uh, the region lost respect for the United States to some extent? Uh, I think the United States has always been in this rather in, invidious position that there's, uh, there's no sweet spot for it in the region. It's either uh, too hot or too cold. Um, fears of uh, abandonment, fears of entrapment uh, seem to uh, uh, constantly dominate e even the, the thoughts of its closest uh, allies. But at the moment, uh, they seem to be fearing both entrapment uh, and abandonment together, which is the sign, I think, very clearly of a mismanaged alliance relationship on the part of the United States. Uh, but stepping up from that, just at a very basic level, uh, one has to be extremely worried. Just looking at uh, events out of the United States uh, in the past week, uh, that we see uh, you know, almost an implosion uh, going on of, uh, of the United States in its coherence as a, as a country, let alone as an international actor. Uh, and there obviously have to be a, a, a whole series of strategic flow-on questions arising from that. Uh, whether the United States uh, now goes through a period of intense uh, introspection, uh, maybe even of, of, of continuing decline, uh, which is, has the same virtual effect as a period of, of isolationism. Whether or not the United States wants to be engaged, many people are, are simply going to be focused on, on restoring um, basic st stability and, uh, and coherence at home. Uh, so I think, although I have some sympathy that the United States is, is always in that uh, uh, too hot or too cold position uh, in the region, particularly in Southeast Asia, where I think it's... Uh, its allies um, 
are, are often uh, not its best friends. Uh, one thinks of the uh, recent experience with the Philippines where um, it's uh, Monday, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, one story, and then um, the rest of the week, a thoroughly diff different narrative, depending on which side of the bed President Duterte has, has got out of. Uh, but I think that if we reduce it back to um, a balance of power uh, calculation, uh, China cannot be balanced absent the United States. I'm firmly convinced of that. So I think that will um, cast its, uh, its influence on thinking, um, certainly within the region, uh, in a helpful way. This finally asks the question of, uh, of allies and partners who forever are uh, talking about having to do more uh, independently and of their own volition. Well, now it's real. Uh, you know, the, the question is being asked. Uh, in this void of, of leadership by the United States, we do see some positive signs emerging, I think, uh, of uh, new uh, partnerships uh, beginning to happen on a global basis, not just in the region. That's what I've noticed in the way that Australia's diplomatic contours have, have, uh, have flipped away from the kind of traditional focus on, on ASEAN. But of course, it is going to come down to Asia in, in the end for countries uh, in, in this region. Um, that's, the, that's the bottom line. And they will have to um, stitch together as broad and creative networks as they can until such point as the United States uh, comes back into play as a more uh, dependable actor. Um, it may not. Uh, that is also another uh, possibility that we face. Uh, if there is a second uh, Trump uh, term, uh, then I think we are looking at um, a very dark scenario indeed. Well, on that note, I want to acknowledge that today is the 4th of June and the anniversary of the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. And a vigil, yearly vigil to commemorate the occasion in Hong Kong has been banned this year due to reasons related to, co to the COVID pandemic. But it seems that people will still plan to commemorate the occasion by lighting candles across the city. There are questions, of course, as to whether Hong Kong will be able to do uh, so and commemorate this occasion again in the future, uh, keeping in mind that the um, uh, at the two sessions NPC uh, uh, this year in China, uh, the national security law was passed, raising questions over the future of Hong Kong's relative autonomy under the one country, two systems arrangement. Now, the U.S. has spoken strongly uh, against these developments, but as you noted, uh, you and um, other countries have also come together to um, speak out against this. Uh, notably, uh, there was a joint statement on uh, the situation in Hong Kong by Australia, Canada, the U.K., and the United States. I wanted to ask, how do other countries in the region view these developments? Um, perhaps, Lynn, from a Southeast Asian perspective. Um, I think Southeast Asia in general is a lot less um, uh, seized by the issue of um, Hong Kong and the national security law that um, the PRC is seeking to pass in Hong Kong. Um, I think the reason for that is that from the perspective of many uh, countries in the region who privilege uh, security um, and stability, the events of Hong Kong last year were very damaging to um, Hong Kong, Hong Kong status as a financial center and hurt businesses, hurt the economy and ultimately hurt people. So that's kind of the mindset that many, of course, not everyone, but many people in the region um, that I've spoken to view the events um, last summer. Um, I think 
I think the view, um, and then of course there's the view that um, the protests don't really help or the riots didn't really help um, protests in my view, riots in some others' views, um, didn't really help um, the situation in Hong Kong because um, uh, because if it is about economic inequality, which many of the people in the region thought it was, then then it has not resolved the situation. But I think it, the, 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 the troubles that Hong Kong are now facing are far deeper than economic issues, but more to do with uh, fundamental um, issues of political rights and identity. Um, I don't think that many of the young people um, identify with the PRC uh, more broadly, and I think that's that's the ultimate difficulty. Um, in terms of what has been, um, you know, in terms of uh, countries like the UK, uh, you know, the, the the statement by the seven former foreign ministers saying that you know the UK should lead um, uh, an international response uh, to to responding to the situation in Hong Kong. Um, I, I don't. I think there there will be some con condemnation of what China is doing, but I don't know that that's um, going to change matters very much. And if we look at the situation in the UK, it, it looks like quite a mess from outside. Um, it's got Brexit coming. Um, it's got negotiations over Brexit coming up. It's got the COVID situation still unresolved. It's adrift from the EU. It's, you know, on the choppy waters of transatlantic ties, um, can it really afford to estrange itself from China moving forwards? I, I don't know. Um, maybe it will find uh, some backbone and you know stand on the matter of principle, but I, I don't know that it's going to be sustainable. And then in terms of the US, um, uh, the U.S. potentially imposing sanctions um, and revoking trade principles. I, I'm also not clear how that will help Hong Kong. It might hurt China marginally, but certainly less than it would have in the past when Hong Kong formed a lot uh, great, uh, a far higher percentage of um, of the PRC's uh, GDP. Um, ultimately, such trade um, sanctions might even hurt the United States because it currently enjoys a trade surplus with Hong Kong, ironically. So it's, it's really a difficult situation, and I'm not sure that there's any clear way out of it. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd agree that very few countries in Asia would be prepared to take a public stand on Hong Kong. We did see uh, a, a refreshingly forward-leaning statement out of Japan in recent days, but I wouldn't expect it would go uh, any uh, further than that. So I think it is a, a fact of life that uh, on Hong Kong it, it's going to be left to, um, uh, to the UK with its particular responsibility in the, in the matter, uh, but also to uh, you know, the so-called like-minded, the, the Canada, uh, Australia and the United States to coordinate their positions. And I'm glad that they have. I think that's one lesson for Australia uh, uh, from the COVID inquiries, having um, gone out all alone uh, and found out that uh, there were some rather chill international uh, winds in that environment, it's better to, to find friends before you uh, do so again. And uh, at least there are friends uh, to be able to, to do that with. I think as a liberal democracy, you have to stand out uh, in favour of, of, um, of human rights and, and, uh, and democracy, regardless of whether China will change its position or not. I, I don't think that's just whistling in the wind. It's a, it's a vital expression of, uh, of, of who you are and your confidence in your own system and your uh, willingness not to be silenced in the face of, of clear 
uh, coercion from, uh, from China. Uh, but I think it would also be a mistake to look at Hong Kong in isolation as somehow uh, something that's sui generis or just uh, uh, a city-state that's in a state of, uh, of, um, of, of, of anarchy or, or meltdown. Uh, there's much more at play at this. Um, look at what China's doing elsewhere. It's taking on an extraordinary amount of confrontation uh, with India on one hand, uh, with, uh, uh, with, with Taiwan, and of course Taiwan is, is intimately linked to the Hong Kong situation because uh, even the Kuomintang has now admitted that one country, two systems uh, is untenable as a platform uh, for it uh, to hold electorally uh, within Taiwan. Uh, and that, of course, is going to harden, um, sharpen the choice for China, because if there's no peaceful route to reunification through um, that the people of Taiwan will choose as a result of how uh, Beijing has treated Hong Kong, then that, that's a clear, uh, very important uh, strategic connection uh, right there. But I think it, it, it really, it's Hong Kong as a, as a, uh, uh, you know, a, a microcosm of how um, uh, China's uh, behavior is going to uh, uh, play out uh, in contradiction, uh, in violation of its own uh, international treaty level uh, agreements. I think that's the most disturbing uh, exemplar effect of, uh, of, of Hong Kong. Um, our ability to actually do anything about it is going to be very limited, with one exception, which will be to uh, to open up uh, places for potential uh, refugees in future. And I think uh, the June the 4th um, uh, date hangs heavy in the air there. And I think it, it's only right that um, Britain is prepared to do that. And I think, um, although I'm very critical of the UK uh, policies in, in many other respects, I, I do think they have got their act together a little bit. Uh, on, on China in the last month, and Hong Kong is one element of that. And I think that the, the agreement in principle to extend uh, uh, a one-year residency for, uh, for those um, uh, Hong Kong uh, British overseas passport holders is, is, a, is, is a good one, and one that I think should be extended in time and proportionate to what they can accept to uh, Canada uh, and uh, Australia as well. I just wanted to pick up on one point that Ewan made, because I think that was critical, namely that you cannot look at Hong Kong in isolation. And that's the same with many of the other issues that we are confronting, many of the difficult issues we're confronting today. Many think the issue, for example, of the South China Sea is over just rocks and reefs in the South China Sea, and it doesn't concern a faraway country. But all these issues relate to international law, to the rule of law, to how countries as they rise behave, to how... Uh, countries between themselves behave, whether it whether they compete within the constraints of the uh, of a rules based order, or it's a no holds barred uh, competition. And I think the latter would be tremendously um, problematic um, for the world moving forward. And what we should all be working for is to see the linkages between various issues and try to ensure that principles don't fall apart and you know get picked apart by superpower uh, by great power rivalry or bad behavior. Well, thank you so much both for being on the show and sharing your insights. It's been a really fascinating discussion and 
Um, I think you've both shown that there's a lot to keep an eye on, um, a lot of developments that will most likely be rolled out over the next few months and that we at the IISS and um, particularly also at the Asia office will be covering um, keenly. To keep up to date with the latest trends in international security and armed conflict, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. See you all next time.